Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue week two of our series, Life Lessons from David, the man who would be king, as Dr. Newfeld unpacks what it means to be a man or woman of integrity based on 1 Samuel chapter 26. There are believers around the world who meet in underground, illegal house churches in order to worship and hear the Word of God preached. They are disobeying their government. And yet many of these same believers remain loyal to their government, looking for opportunities to demonstrate that they do not seek the overthrow of their government, yet at crucial moments testify with the apostles from Acts 4.19 that they must listen to God rather than men. You know, we do well to remember that Romans 13, that famous passage of Scripture where Paul insists that every person must be subject to the governing authorities, was written during the time when the mad Roman emperor Nero was reigning. You know, that same Nero would execute the man who told fellow believers to remain subject to the governing authorities. And it is this, the delicate balancing act that Christians must embrace. As the values in our culture shift, Christians are finding themselves on the outside. And here's what I mean. Years ago, even though the majority in our culture were not Christian, they would have thought of themselves as holding Christian values, or at least believing Christian values were admirable. Today, Christians are thought of as holding hateful, intolerant, and even dangerous values. Now, that's especially seen when it comes to sexual ethics. The scriptural revelation is that sex is to be confined to heterosexual marriage alone. And that was once thought of as perhaps outdated, but still represented stability and virtue. And today, this is thought of as containing deep seeds of dangerous hatred towards others. And so we find ourselves in a position where we, like in Acts 4.19, must listen to God rather than men. And yet, in Romans 13, we look to subject ourselves to the governing authorities wherever we can. We seek to bless our country where we can, and we seek the good welfare of our land. Now, this delicate balancing act is nothing new. And as we have been studying the life of David, we find him trying to navigate these very waters. I think that believers living in the 21st century have a great deal to learn from 1 Samuel 26. So let's begin by reading verses 1 to 4. Then the Zivites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. So let's remember that this is now the second major attempt to defeat David in the Judean desert. On the first occasion recorded in chapter 24, David spared Saul's life. Saul was relieving himself in a cave, and David had the opportunity to strike him down, but he refused. In response, Saul had acknowledged that David could have killed him, and then also committed himself to not pursuing David again. But now the Ziphites, the very same group that had encouraged Saul to kill David last time, were at it again. They had spies, and and as had been the case last time, they urged Saul to come and kill David. When we discussed the Ziphites last time, 
We noticed that they belonged to the clan of Caleb and were from Judah, as was David. They were his kinsmen. It may be that when David married Abigail, they may have perceived a very powerful alliance forming where Nabal had once held power, and seeing David growing in that area of power, they became more and more uncomfortable with David. So they redouble their efforts and convince Saul, if you will only try once more, you'll get your enemy once for all, and you'll rid yourself of this problem. Whatever their reasoning was, Saul agrees. Saul is given definite reporting as to the exact location of David. He must have reasoned one more hard push and will have him. But David has his own spies, and they learn that Saul has come. And David's spies tell him exactly where Saul is. And this time, rather than running from Saul, David slowly and by stealth makes his way to Saul's camp. And as they approach the camp, they wait until evening. And as the drama unfolds, the author of 1 Samuel makes a perceptive statement. Not only has everyone in Saul's camp fallen asleep, verse 12 says, a deep sleep from the Lord has fallen upon them. God supernaturally intervenes, and it would seem that even the sentries were fast asleep. And so David himself, along with Abishai, the brother of Joab, goes down into the camp of Saul in the night. It must have been an eerie scene. Not one person is awake. And just like before, David is faced with a test. Saul's spear is struck into the ground at his head, and Abner, his commander, lies sleeping on the ground beside him. It's Abishai who speaks what any other person must have thought. Verse 8 says, Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. It's an interesting scene to imagine. This conversation is in the dark at the faintest of a whisper. I note several things. David has enforced a discipline on his troops. Abishai knows he cannot act without David giving him his approval. But as before, David says he will not stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. God has brought Saul into his power, and David is in no place to do that which only God can do. But David takes Saul's spear in his water jar as a proof, like before, that he could have harmed Saul but refused. Then David leaves the camp of Saul with Abishai and crosses over to the top of the hill where his troops are, and with a great deal of space in between them. And it seems likely that the morning had not yet come, at a time when he could have made a pre-dawn raid and basically destroyed Saul's army. He calls out to the king. His voice would have echoed off the canyon walls. He calls out to Saul's army and most specifically to Abner. And it is to Abner that David makes his case. Have a look at the place by the king's head where the spear and the water jar were. I have taken them and could have killed your king. It's your number one job to guard the king, and because of your negligence, you deserve to die. Now, David's actions do two things. He reaffirms the right and the duty for the men around Saul to guard his life. This is a duty appointed by the state, and they have the moral obligation to carry it out. In spite of Saul's madness and cruelty, there is a place for the state and for the servants of the state. David's actions show the respect he has for that position. And second, David reaffirms that he is not a revolutionary, nor does he seek the violent overthrow of the king. As we read this account, we might think of Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 17. The Pharisees are seeking to trap him with a question. Tell us then what you think, they say. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the reason why the question is so important is that Jesus is being viewed by many as the Messiah, the Anointed One. 
If he is to reign on David's throne, then Caesar will have to be overthrown. And of course, we know that Jesus asked for a coin and asked whose likeness and inscription is on this coin. And then he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus will have no part in a violent overthrow of a government leader. And behind this interaction was a hated Roman poll tax, which symbolized submission to Rome. But in the present hour, Jesus was making it quite clear that submission to Rome in the area of taxation was exactly what he was advancing. He would have believed that the state was ordained by God and has a sphere of authority. But as David's life shows us, when the state moves beyond the sphere of authority that God has given it, we must resist. So we see David walking a difficult pathway. He will not be party to killing the king, and he will scold Abner, the military commander, for his dereliction of duty to protect the king. But he will not surrender to the king either. Now, before we go on, we must be aware that in a democratic nation, where we have the right to contest the policies of our political leaders, we should treat this right as a great privilege. But even where we protest and disagree with our government, we will do well to treat national and civic leaders with respect, not disrespect. I think this is what marks us uniquely as Christians. We may articulate our disagreements and even call for change, but we do not hurl insults or mock or slander or caricature those who have been appointed by God to lead. The governing authorities, whoever they are, are put into office by the sovereign hand of a God who controls all things for the purpose of his will. And so we come back to David. He is never portrayed as a perfect man. And in the last chapter, he came within a hairbreadth of killing Nabal and his servants. The inspired author also highlights others of his failures, but it is here that David understands. Saul may be a rebel to the purposes of God, but Saul is the one God has appointed nonetheless. David will content himself in the plans of God. And when we come back, we will take this story to the last dialogue between David and Saul and David's wise choice that even though he knows not to rebel against the one appointed by God, he will never again trust Saul. He will remain wary of him from that day onward. As the growing tension between David and Saul rises to its climatic conclusion, we see another critical choice that God puts before the man who would be king. Just when there lies the perfect opportunity to put an end to this conflict once and for all, David's decision reveals his true heart to remain obedient to God and his will. So what's the key to us becoming men or women who show this kind of integrity in our own lives? Well, more from Dr. Neufeld right after the break. This month, Dr. Neufeld will be introducing a brand new series, Your Salvation Story. We believe these messages are so important for believers. We want to send you the five-message series on CD for free. This series will speak clearly into questions like, what does it really mean to be saved? What is the evidence of my salvation? Can I be assured that I'm saved? Is it necessary for my sins to be forgiven? There are so many critical questions, even though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, these are questions and answers that every true believer 
should be informed about. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app beginning Monday, May 20th. And don't forget to contact us today to ask for your free CD copy of Your Salvation Story by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. First Samuel 26, verse 17 records the following. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? It's an interesting response. My son David. I mean, those are words of affection and relationship. To our ears, they sound strange. How can a man who has just sought to kill David call him his son? At the very least, they do not sound sincere. And as we try to digest what it is that Saul might have meant by this curious choice of words, we notice that David does not respond in kind. Rather than the words, my father, David chooses the words, my Lord, and refers to himself as Saul's servants. These are formal words of David's commitment to honor Saul's kingship, but not to enter into an intimate relationship with Saul. Now, in our English Bible, this is just a bit confusing. Whenever we find the word Lord with capitalized letters, that is capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, we know that the translator is signaling us that this is in fact a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, or the covenant name for God. But David is not calling Saul his God, rather he's calling him his Lord in the sense that he recognizes that within the rightful realm of authority that God has given to Saul, David will submit to Saul as his king. But he does not address him in terms of intimacy or friendship. They actually share no friendship at all. Let's listen to David's response. Why does my Lord pursue his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If Yahweh has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before Yahweh, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the inheritance of Yahweh, saying, go serve other gods. Now, that's quite a mouthful. David knows that Saul either wants to kill him or to drive him from Israel. And if he is driven from Israel to make his home either among the Moabites or the Philistines, he, in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking, would be serving foreign gods. That's because the God and the nation go together, that is, in the mind of ancient peoples. You want to remove the heritage of the people of God from me, says David. That is an all-out accusation. David knows what Saul has been attempting, and he is not afraid to say it. But why is Saul doing such a thing? If David has sinned against God, he will offer a sacrifice. That is to say, if I have sinned, I will repent before the Lord and plead with him for mercy. But if it is because of evil things that others are saying, may those who slander me be cursed. And then in reply to this, Saul responds, I have sinned. See, he knows he is the one who is cursed. And Saul doesn't want to be cursed. You know, that's the saddest state of Saul who knows that God has left him and who is in a horrible spiritual condition. Occasionally, he seems to wake up out of his plight, only to plunge back into the darkness again. Saul is presented as this tragic, condemned, sometimes pitiful man who then returns to doing evil. It's hard to look at him and not feel sorry for him. 
And then in this seemingly humble estate, Saul adds something that, that really should shock us. David, if you are driven out of your heritage, then I have a word for you. Let's listen as the inspired writer records Saul's speech, verse 21. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. See, every Christian knows that it is Christ's demand that we are to forgive our enemies. In Matthew 5, 44 to 45, Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, just as your heavenly Father blesses people who are unjust by providing them with rain on their parched crops, so also we should bless people who do evil to us. And indeed, we should. And more so, so did David. He refused to allow his men to do harm to Saul or to his men. That was a great blessing to both the king and to the men who were with him. But notice Saul's statement to David. David, he says, I know I have driven you out of your heritage. This day I see the wrong I've done. I'll restore your place in my kingdom and restore your heritage. Come back and our relationship will be restored. Now, please understand this in context. Saul had tried to pin David to the wall with his spear not once, but three times. Then he attempted to put him on the front lines of the battle so that he would die there. Then he tried to have him murdered as he exited his own house. Next, he murdered a whole company of priests and their entire village to signal to anyone that if they sided with David, they too would be butchered. Now, for the second time, he had marched his entire army out into the wilderness to wipe him out. If Saul had found David before David found Saul, the end would have come swiftly. David would have been killed without mercy. And here's the lesson. Forgiveness in the sense of blessing one's enemy when it is in our power to do so, or forgiveness, in the sense of not harboring bitterness in our heart against the other, or forgiveness in the sense of doing one's enemy no harm, all of this is a divine mandate. But forgiveness is not to be confused with trust. Saul was not to be trusted, and therefore David did not go back with him. Forgiveness is offered free of charge, and it is offered openly. Trust must be earned, and in truth, if David would have gone back with Saul, Saul would have killed him in no time. Saul was not to be trusted, and David would not go back with him. And this is a lesson for all who have had, you know, perhaps a spouse cheat on them. Forgiveness must be forthcoming, and trust can be restored, but trust must be earned. Forgiveness is not an invitation to be gullible. It's to be wise and discerning, even careful, while it harbors no bitterness, looks for opportunities to bless, and refuses to harm the other. The same is true for the individual who's had a business partner steal all their funds. Forgiveness is freely offered, but one does not entrust to that person a new sum of money immediately. Reconciliation requires the reestablishment of trust, and that, my dear friends, goes so much further. Had David forgiven Saul? I I think so. When Saul finally died in battle, David wept over Saul and even taught Israel a song which included references to Saul as the glory of Israel and as the one who was loved by many. David resolutely refused to, to take the role of a bitter man. 
But he also did not go back with Saul. And his last words to Saul was very simple. Verse 24 records David as saying, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And with that, Saul acknowledged that David would one day succeed. And the passage simply ends, So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now, what does this passage say to the contemporary Christian? We began by speaking about the relationship of the Christian to the state. We said that Christians are called upon to be subject to the state, but they always recognize that there are defined limits of authority in which the state can legitimately be obeyed. But what should they do if the state persecutes believers and puts them to death? The answer is that believers forgive their enemies, but they don't tell the state where they meet or who their leaders are or leave themselves vulnerable to further mistreatment. They forgive, but trust must be earned. I know that believers are required to look forward to trust being reestablished. We leave openness for it, but we do not assume it by logical necessity. In a sense, David is a wonderful portrayal of a man who has understood that what we later call the mind of Christ. When God delivers our enemy into our hand, we simply will not raise our hands and strike. In the end, there is a place where these judgments are made, but they are not ours to make. They belong to God. But David also knows that he must make all the precautions he can to ensure that Saul will have no more opportunity to inflict harm upon him. He will remain an outcast, but he will wait for the justice of God, for it will not delay its coming. Thanks for today, John. Uh, The question that comes to mind is, with all the governments making decisions that would seem contrary to the Bible, what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? I think we start by at least saying from the Word of God, that when governments do that, they have overstepped their boundaries. The Creator has given certain laws that they must not violate. But while we say that, and while we object, we do so in a way that still respects the legitimate right of even those governments to exist. So we always have this balancing act wherein we are loyal, and yet our ultimate loyalty will always be to God. There is a line which the government must not cross, and we will always say no. Well, the second week of our series on the life of David has been a challenging one. We've dug deep into understanding what happened as David was on the run, trying to protect his life from Saul on a few different occasions. And we've seen the character and faith of a young man who is learning what it means to follow after God's own heart. I hope today's lesson on how to live a life of integrity has had a profound impact, and I pray that we would embrace the importance and take intentional steps to live a life of forgiveness, submission, and resting in God's plan and faithfulness. Be sure to join us next week as Dr. Neufeld begins week three of this series on the life of David. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for the Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, 
and special ministry friends and musicians, Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with friends and family and enjoy incredible ports of call, an amazing ship, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.